Here are the offerings that he earmarks. In verse 4, he says, All the money of the dedicated gifts that are brought into the house of the Lord, and then he specifies. First, each man's census money. So that was one of the offerings. Every adult Jewish male in Israel was required to give a half shekel offering every year. So he is setting that aside. And then he says, each man's assessment money. That is uh, like vow money. So you could, in Israel, you could take, make voluntary vows to God, where you would make a pledge to God. When this happens, Lord, I, I vow that I'm going to give this amount of service. Or I'm going to give this amount of money. And it was a regular thing in Israel. And so he is saying any vow offerings that come in, the yearly census offerings that come in, and then the last one is the money that, that a man purposes in his heart to bring. So this is voluntary offerings. So people also, in addition to all these extra offerings, might just want to give a Thanksgiving offering that they bring into the temple. And so what he's doing is he is taking those three specific offerings and he's telling the priest that those offerings are to be set aside. And all the money that comes in for those three offerings is going to be used to make repairs in the temple. Now, think about what a challenge this is. All you have to do is think, why has the temple not already been repaired? All right, let me ask it this way. So when the temple was first built, how many tribes were supporting it? Twelve. All twelve tribes of Israel worship there. All twelve tribes of Israel brought their offerings there. But what's happened since then? A civil war. How many tribes broke away from the southern kingdom? Ten. So 10 of the tribes broke away and formed their own idolatrous religion. So what was once supported by 12 tribes is now supported by two tribes. So the income coming into the temple has shrunk by over 80%. So what happens when income goes down like that? Well, all of a sudden, anything that is not absolutely necessary gets left undone. Well, one of the things that is getting left undone is renovations. It's repairs that need to be done. And so what, what King Joash is saying is he is saying, you need to refigure your budget. Whatever you've been use, using this money for, I want you to set it aside, and it is going to be designated to make repairs in the temple. It's a great plan. So let's see how the plan plays out. Verse 6. Now it was so, by the 23rd year of King Jehoash, that the priest had not repaired the damages of the temple. So King Jehoash called Jehoiada the priest and the other priest and said to them, why have you not repaired the damages of the temple? Now therefore do not take more money from your constituency, but deliver it for repairing the damages of the temple. And the priest agreed that they would neither receive more money from the people nor repair the damages of the temple. So he gives an order. All of this money is to be set aside and used to fix the temple. Now it fast forwards, and now we're in the 23rd year of King Joash. So the seven-year-old boy who started reigning is now 30 years old. Now we're not told when he gave the order to rebuild, but the impression here is it's been a very long time. And King Joash realizes nothing has been done to the temple. Now that raises a question about Joash, I should say. The fact that year upon year passes and he doesn't realize any repairs have been made to the temple, what does that imply about Joash? That year upon year, he hasn't been to the temple. But the day comes, maybe, maybe it's Easter service, and Joash goes to the temple, and Joash realizes that nothing has been done. 
And so he calls the priest back in and he goes, guys, why haven't any repairs been made? And that question is just sort of left hanging in the air. We're never told why. Uh, From the way the story plays out after this, I think we can make a couple guesses. One possible answer is um, they're just not motivated to do it because there's very limited income. So if you start pushing people to give for renovations, what's the danger in the priest's mind? We should step up back and say, how are the priests supported? By the offerings. So if the priests start telling people they need to give for renovations, what fear might there be in the minds of the priest? They're gonna stop giving these other offerings. We're not gonna have money to feed our family. They're going to rob Peter to pay Paul. We're not going to push those offerings. Okay, so that's, that's one possibility, that maybe they have different obligate financial priorities. That's another one. There might have been some financial mismanagement by some priests. And the reason I say that is in just a minute, when Joash takes this over, he's going to make sure that all of this is done in, in the public eye. He's going to put the offering box. He's going to do everything out in the open, in the courtyard, so that everybody can see what's going on, which gives the impression that maybe there were a couple priests who were skimming some things off the top. Maybe that was a problem. One other possibility is maybe it hadn't been done just because Jehoiada wasn't gifted to do this. Okay, so Jehoiada is the high priest. He is a good, godly man. He's the one who had actually led the people to overthrow Queen Athaliah. He had motivated the people to fight for King Joash. But you can be really good at some things and be weak in other things. So, so maybe King Joash is trying to get Jehoiada to lead something and he's just not gifted administratively. And he's, he doesn't have the skills to do it. So wh- whatever the reason is, what happens at the end of it is King Joash calls the priest in and goes, okay guys, we're going to go to plan B. And plan B is, I'm going to do it on my own. So y'all stop collecting the money. Y'all don't worry about getting the contractors. I'll take it from here. So he's going to handle it. Well, here's here's how it goes once he handles it. Verse 9. Then Jehoiada the priest took a chest, bored a hole in its lid, and set it beside the altar on the right side as one comes into the house of the Lord. And the priest who kept the door put put there all the money brought into the house of the Lord. And so it was whenever they saw that there was much money in the chest that the king's scribe and the high priest came up and put it in bags and counted the money that was found in the house of the Lord. And then they gave the money which had been apportioned into the hands of those who did the work, who had the oversight of the house of the Lord. And they paid it out to the carpenters and builders who worked on the house of the Lord and to masons, the stone cutters, and for buying timber and hewn stone to repair all the damage of the house of the Lord and for all that was paid out to repair the temple. Stop for a minute. Have you ever been in a church that used the chest of Joash by any chance? I I, I have. What it was, it was just the church built this big wooden treasure chest looking thing that they would set down front when there were special offerings and that's where you would put your offering and they called it the chest of Joash. This is where that whole picture comes from. So what King Joash does is he gets a big chest, a big wooden box, they bore a hole in the top of it and he sets the box in the courtyard, very public place right next to the altar where everybody's going to see it and they make it known that if you're coming in with one of these three offerings, the money is supposed to go in this chest. And everything that comes in in this chest is going to go to make repairs in the temple. And not only that, but he has the, the priests who sort as, serve as the doorkeepers 
are right there next to this chest. They're able to keep an eye on it. They know everything that's going on with the chest. And they're keeping an eye. And as the chest begins to fill up, they open it. They take the money out. They count the money. They bag the money. And they immediately take the money and pay construction workers. And the construction workers buy the material. The construction workers get to work. But they only buy the materials and do the work for what they have money for. So they're doing a little bit along the way. As they get money, they're paying workers. They stop when they run out of money. As they get more money, they pay more workers. And, and think about what this means for the people. Because now, the people are giving money, but they see that their money, for the first time, is actually being used for what they were told their money was going to be used for. The money going into the box is actually being used to repair the temple. And so what effect do you think that has on the people? It's motivation to the people to keep giving. So money keeps going in, and they keep taking it out, and the work keeps moving forward. And so the temple is now being refurbished. This is, Joash is administratively gifted. This is a wise plan that he puts in place. Okay, and then it clarifies what's not done with the money. Verse 13. However... There were not made for the house of the Lord basins of silver, trimmers, sprinkling bowls, trumpets, any articles of gold or articles of silver from the money brought, brought into the house of the Lord. But they gave that to the workmen and they repaired the house of the Lord with it. Moreover, they did not require an account from the men into whose hand they delivered the money to be paid to, be paid to workmen. For they dealt faithfully. The money from the trespass offerings and the money from the sin offerings was not brought into the house of the Lord. It belonged to the priest. Now, there's, there's three little caveats we're given here. First, we're told they didn't use the money to get all the different items for the temple. Now, we find out in Second Chronicles that what that means is they didn't use the money initially. They didn't use the money for that until all the work in the temple was done. Remember now, back to the Old Testament and to Exodus, there were tons of different items you needed for temple worship. There were bowls and lavers and basins and tongs and cups and lampstands. Well, all that's been ransacked from the temple. But their commitment is they're not going to use the money to get that stuff until all the repairs are done. That's, that's one thing that's being clarified here. Here's another thing that's being clarified here. The workmen that they used, they didn't have to watch like hawks because they were, commit, they were convinced that the workmen they chose for the job were faithful workmen. Now, I wish it gave more detail here on how they found these guys, but, but the idea is there was no concern, there was no concern that they were giving money to the con contractors and the contractors were going to use that money to buy the materials for another job, right? They're, they know these guys and they know these guys are faithful men, they're doing the work for the money that they're paid, and then we're told two offerings they certainly did not use for the work. Did you see that in verse 16? The money from the trespass offering and the money for the sin offering was not brought in to the house of the Lord. Now, why is that significant? What was the trespass offering and the sin offering God had already designated? What was that used for? Well, that's how the priest got their income. And so this is just making the point that, that the plan was not they cut the priest's salary in half so that they had more money on this. So the priest's concern seems to have been that if people gave to that, they wouldn't have any income. And, and this is just showing that's not the way it worked that Joash made sure they were taken care of and the work in the temple, it's all getting done at the same time. Okay, that's Joash's plan. Everybody tracking with me? Okay. Just pause. Catch your breath. Because if, if that's where the story ended, it would be a wonderful story. Joash organized this project to rebuild and refurbish the house of God. 
And if that was the end of Joash's story, I would be tempted to put him on the Mount Rushmore of Judean kings. This is a grand work. This is something that needed to be done. This is something that had been put off for decade upon decade. If the story ended there, it would be great. The story's not going to end there. In fact, we get a pretty abrupt turn as you move into verse 17. Notice the turn. It seems to come out of nowhere. Verse 17. Hazael, king of Syria, went up and fought against Gath and took it. Then Hazael set his face to go up against Jerusalem. And Jehoash, king of Judah, took all the sacred things that his fathers, Jehoshaphat and Jehoram and Ahaziah, kings of Judah, had dedicated, and his own sacred things. And all the gold fell into the treasuries of the house of the Lord and in the king's house, and sent them to Hazael, king of Syria. And then he, he there is Hazael, and then he went away from Jerusalem. Did you see this is an abrupt term because here's a king who has spent years now getting things right in the temple. He spent years now getting all the supplies that they need and rebuilding the temple. And all of a sudden Haziel turns his way and he goes in and he plunders their own temple. Now, there's more to the story. This is why I told you at the beginning you need to have your other finger in 2 Chronicles. There's more to the story than what we read here. Um, 2 Chronicles tells this same story and it actually fills in a little bit more of what's happening. Listen to 2 Chronicles 24, verses 17 and 18. It says, now after the death, here comes Jehoiada's death again. After the death of Jehoiada, the leaders of Judah came and bowed to the king, and the king listened to them. Therefore, they left the house of the Lord God of their fathers and served wooden images and idols. And wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem because of their trespass. Remember, Joash did good all the days of Jehoiada. But what happened when Jehoiada died? He started listening to other counselors. So, so the whole picture here is that, that Joash had strong convictions as long as Jehoiada was there. Because he lived based on Jehoiada's convictions. He lived based on Jehoiada's commitments. He lived based on Jehoiada's faith. He lived based on Jehoiada's moral compass. But when Jehoiada dies, what happens to his moral compass? What happens to his convictions? What happens to his spiritual commitments? It all crumbles. And so other advisors come in who set a brand new moral compass, who set brand new convictions who set brand new spiritual convictions. And King Joash, in the latter years of his life, turns away from God and worships idols. It gets even worse. Listen to verse 19. This is still Second Chronicles. Yet this is God. Yet he, yet God sent prophets to them to bring them back to the Lord. And they testified against them, but they would not listen. What, what's God mercifully doing here? He's sending prophet upon prophet to call the people of Judah to repent. He's sending prophet upon prophet to call, call King Joash to repent, and they ignore him. But then the story zooms in on one particular prophet. This is the one that should rip your heart out. Second Chronicles 24, verse 20. Then the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada the priest, who stood above the people and said to them, Thus says God. Why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? 
Because you've forsaken the Lord, he has also forsaken you. So they conspired against him, listen, and at the command of the king, they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. And thus Joash the king did not remember the kindness which Jehoiada his father had done to him, but killed his son. And as he died, he said, the Lord look on it and repay. Do you, do you see what a horrible betrayal? King Joash had been raised by Jehoiada. Jehoiada is the man who had advised him and helped him and counseled him and protected him. Jehoshaphat, the wife of Zechariah, the mother of Zechariah, is the lady who saved him from the king's executioners. This is the family that had loved him and nurtured him, and now Jehoiada is dead. Zechariah the prophet comes and says, repent, you have forsaken God. And what does King Joash do? He has him executed. This Zechariah must have been like his stepbrother, foster brother when he was growing up. Don't you think Zechariah was there in the temple with him for those years when he was being raised there? This is the family that had loved him and now he reaches a point in his life where he turns his back on God and he betrays this family that had invested so much in it. Do, do you see how your, I mean it takes like three verses and your opinion of Joash just plummets. And it takes us back to what we started with. What happened in Joash's life? And what happened in Joash's life is up to this point, he had lived his whole life on secondhand faith. He had, he had lived his whole life based on the strength of Jehoiada's faith, right? And this is so, it is so easy to do. That you have folks, you have kids who are, are raised around church things and they live their whole lives following their parents' convictions and by their parents' moral commitments. But then they get a job and they move away from home or they go off to college. And all of us, it's almost like, it's almost like these external things can be the scaffolding around your life. But if it is not your faith, what happens when the scaffolding is taken, taken away? The faith collapses. And that's exactly what happens here. It can happen in a lot of, of areas. I, I've seen, you probably have too, I've seen folks in church life, families that seem to be very committed and devoted and have a strong conscience and love the Lord. And the, it's a large family there. And then the patriarch of the family passes away. And all of a sudden, the whole family over the next year crumbles, disappears. They're not around anymore. There seems to be no conscience, no commitment to worshiping God. And, and all of a sudden, you realize that the real conscience and commitments, it wasn't tied to the Lord, it was tied to this family member. So, so the danger in your life, uh, I need to say it a couple ways. One, if you have people in your life who love the Lord and who have invested in you and have invested in your faith and have helped you grow in the faith, thank God for that. That is a good thing. If you have a godly mom and dad who built into you spiritual commitments and convictions, thank God for that. If you have some mentor or friend who has helped you mature in your faith, thank God for that. Um, if, if you have a husband or a wife who's more spiritually mature than you and they kind of help keep you moving forward, they motivate you to keep moving forward, thank God for that. But there's a difference between being helped in the faith by someone else and depending on the faith of someone else where you feel secure because of them and you're committed because they're committed and you have convictions because they have convictions. If that's how you live your spiritual life, the countdown clock has started. Because the point will come in your life 
when that person that you're tethered to won't be around anymore. That parent will pass away. Your husband or wife's going to go through a, a spiritually dry season. That pastor's going to be gone. That friend is not going to be around anymore. And if the entirety of your faith was built on their faith, if the scaffolding is taken away, you're going to crumble. So if, if you don't get anything else from this story, make sure you get this. It has to be your faith. You have to repent yourself. You have to believe yourself. You have to pursue God yourself. You have to love the Lord yourself. It, it has to be your convictions. It has to be your commitments. It has to be your faith. There is certainly a time as our kids are growing up that they need the scaffolding and they need mom and dad's convictions and commitments. But the challenge is we want them to get to the point where they can stand spiritually on their own two feet. And if, if you are living your whole spiritual life, I, I guess I should ask it this way. Just think to yourself, if whoever that person is in your life, parents, husband, wife, friend, if they were out of the picture tomorrow, where would your spiritual convictions be? If it is not your faith and it's based on someone else, Joash is meant to be a cautionary tale. That faith, that secondhand faith will at some point crumble. And I, I should just say something quickly about the other side. Maybe you're the the mentor in their relationship. Maybe you're the spiritually strong one. Maybe you're the spiritually mature one. Just remind yourself that your goal in all of your discipling relationships is not to get people who depend on you. It can be such an ego, ego boost to have people who just laud you and talk about how much they need you and how dependent they are on you. It might be a wonderful ego boost, but you are not helping that person. We are not trying to get people who are dependent on us. We are trying to lead people who depend on Christ. If all I do is get people who follow my convictions, if whatever my convictions are, that's where they are. Whatever my commitments are, my faith is there. If, if that's all it is, I have not served those people well. Because the day is going to come where you and I are going to be out of those people's lives. And the last thing we want to do is spend our whole lives and our whole ministries developing little Joe ashes. We want people who know the Lord. Okay, so just take this deep into your soul. We're going to move on. Take this deep into your soul. Do some spiritual evaluation in your life. Is your whole spiritual commitment tethered to God through somebody else's faith? Or are you tethered to the Lord yourself? Is it your own faith? Is it your own passion? Is it your own love? If it is not, the tether's going to be gone one day. Okay, make sure it is yours. Make sure it is your faith. Joash didn't have that, and that's why this isn't a happy ending. It's a tragedy. So, you, you remember the last thing Zechariah prayed as he was being stoned. This is the son of Jehoiada and Jehoshaphat. My, my phone is gone now. But you remember the last thing that he prayed? Look back in your text. What, what is he praying for there? The Lord, look on it and repay. So Zechariah, this prophet who he killed, the last thing he prayed is that God would judge. And that's the story we're picking up on here in 2 Kings. God finally did judge through Hazael, part of it anyway. So Hazael is the king of Syria, and Hazael, at some point in the story, invades the Philistine city of Gath. And after he invades Gath, he's close by, so he decides he's going to follow that up by invading Jerusalem. So Hazael and Syria invade Jerusalem. And listen to what 2 Chronicles says. 
Second Chronicles 24, verses 23 and 24. So it happened in the spring of the year that the army of Syria came up against him. And they came to Judah and Jerusalem and destroyed all the leaders of the people from among the people and sent all the spoil to the king of Damascus. For the army of the Syrians came with a small company of men, but the Lord delivered a very great army into their hand because they had forsaken the Lord God of their fathers. So they executed judgment against Joash. So what we read a second ago in 2 Kings about Hazael's invasion is part of God's judgment. Hazael turns toward Judah, and even though he has a smaller army, God gives him victory. In fact, 2 Chronicles tells us King Joash is actually wounded in this battle. And Joash realizes he's in trouble, and so he thinks his only hope is to somehow bribe Hazael to leave them alone and go back home. Well, where's he going to get enough money to bribe Hazael? And the answer is the temple. And that's where that looting the temple comes from. And so King Joash sends all of his men into the temple and they strip it. Not only the temple, but the palace. They strip it of anything that has any value. Every flake of gold they could find, they take and they send to Haziel as a bribe and it works. Haziel takes the bribe and he goes back home. But think of what's happening here. Joash had spent years of his life overseeing the building of the temple. The people of Judah have sacrificed countless hours and countless amounts of money to see the temple built. This is, this is taken years and the whole thing is undone in a matter of hours. He's willing to ransack the whole thing. What does that tell you about Joash? It tells you about Joash that while he had spent all these years building the temple of God, he never actually knew the God of the temple. He spent all of these years investing in this wonderful building project and investing in this and getting people motivated, but he was never actually committed to the God whose temple it belonged to. And so he stripped it He's wounded in the battle, and here's how things end for him. Look at the next part of 2 Kings, verses 19 through 21. Now the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And his servants, listen to how he dies. And his servants arose and formed a conspiracy and killed Joash in the house of the Milo, which goes down to Silla. For Josachar, the son of Shimeath, and Jehozabad, the son of Shomer, his servants, struck him. So he died, and they buried him with his fathers in the city of David. Then Amaziah, his son, reigned in his place. So how does this once great king die? He was wounded in battle, and while he was back recovering from his wounds, his own servants killed him. Why did they kill him? Normally, if you executed a king, you did it for a coup. You did it because you wanted to be in charge. But that's not what they do. The people who kill him don't try to put someone else in charge. They let it stay with his family line. The idea here is they kill him because they just feel like they can't have any more of him. He is too odious. What he has done in Israel is too despicable. Killing this prophet, betraying this family, forsaking the Lord is so odious that as an act of judgment, his own servants execute him. And we're not told that they're even judged in any sort of severe way. And there's one other thing I need to show you because there's actually, it actually gets worse. This is over in Second Chronicles. Verse, uh, chapter 24, verse 25. It says, And when they had withdrawn from him, for they left him severely wounded, his own servants conspired against him because of the blood of the sons of Jehoiada the priest and killed him on his bed. So he died. Notice this last phrase. And they buried him in the city of David but they did not bury him in the tombs of the kings. So when he dies, what happens to him? They bury him in Jerusalem, 
But he has developed such a horrible reputation at this point, they don't even bury him in the royal mausoleum. They don't think he's even worthy of being buried with the other kings of Israel. So I'm, I'm highlighting that just to say, this king whose life began with such promise ended in utter disgrace. Hated by his own people, they refused to even bury him in an honorable way. It, heed the message of Joash here, right? Don't miss this message. It's not enough to have someone in your life who is spiritually mature. It's not enough to be involved in religious works and help in wonderful building projects. It has to be personal. If you don't know and trust and Lord, love the Lord yourself, at some point the scaffolding will come away and your faith will crumble. Yeah, that's right. We don't get to stand behind mom or dad. Or we don't get to stand behind husband or wife. We'll face the Lord on our own. And I went a minute or two over. So let's end there. Let's pray and we'll dismiss. Lord, our hearts are heavy uh, with this story. Uh, God, I, on a couple ways. Lord, one, we don't want to be a church that disciples these sorts of people. Lord, I pray that I would not be a, a pastor who... Uh, through pressed legalism or my own convictions that would develop folks who are dependent on me, but who don't depend on you, who don't know the Lord, who it's not personal for. Um, God, I pray that we wouldn't be discipling Joe Ashes. And then, Lord, I pray for anyone here. I pray this would be a time of real spiritual reflection. And, Lord, no doubt there are some here whose faith is tethered through someone else. And, Father, I pray that you would help them see the the danger of that, and uh, Lord, that they would come to a real faith in Christ themselves. So I pray for repentance, I pray for faith, I pray for awakened hearts, and we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.